this is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. to start this final uh, session of uh, today's workshop and um, the topic of the of this last three papers is migration and revolution and uh, we're going to explore this relationship through both a kind of a, a more theoretical understanding of the way that uprising relate to movements and mobility but also uh, through specific case studies and in particular an approach to exploration of the maps and the idea of mapping and cartographies and the extent to which the way that we represent visually migration flows and routes affect also our uh, understanding of um, what uh, is going on in the Mediterranean area. Um, our first speaker for today is uh, Dr. Nicolas Vanier from Compass, Deputy Director of Compass, who is going to talk about flight and fight. Uh, the second speaker is Professor uh, Phil Mafflet from the University of East London, who is going to address the relationship between uh, revolution and mixed migration in, in Egypt. And finally, um, we got three speakers, uh, Marta Bellingreri, uh, Martina Tazzioli, and uh, Francesca Zampani, who will be talking about uh, the Tunisian mobility and mapping. Um, okay, let's leave the floor to Nick. Um, well, I'm going to offer some very uh, rather general remarks, because I haven't done research, unlike my great colleagues um, and the earlier presentations we've had on uh, the Arab uprising, but I'm going to try and set them in the context of the wider wave of global protest that's gone on over the last uh, few years, and what I've got to say uh, complements or develop or picks up some of the threads in the previous session very much, uh, Hélène's and Nadia's and uh, Julia's uh, points, which were uh, presentations which I, uh, yeah, it's going to develop some of, the, some of those threads. So let me start with a very commonplace, rather simple observation that it's educated but largely jobless, youngish people, including many with tertiary education, the point, the point was made in the last session, that appear to be the drivers of bo both recent um, worldwide protests and much global migration. And this seems to be the case as much uh, in the, uh, the, the so-called global north as in the so-called emerging countries. People in their 20s and 30s in both of those worlds protest and move and sometimes do both. And I think this somewhat obvious observation perhaps deserves greater attention than it's received to date. For what is the relationship, if any, between burgeoning international migration and the recent upsurge of global protest or resistance movements? The Indignados, Occupy, uh, anti-austerity protests in the global north and global south, the Arab up up uprisings that we're talking about today, and the like. Um, so, I'm going to start with one commentator on the, pro on the protest, Paul Mason, a journalist who's covered many of the protests and, uh, and has quite what I think is quite a good analysis of them. 
As he puts it, he says, at the centre of the protest movement is a new sociological type, the graduate with no future. This sociological type, as he calls it, is both often both transnational and has some sort of class characteristics. He says they recognised one another as part of an international subclass with behaviours and aspirations that easily cross borders. The boom years of globalisation have created a, a mass transnational culture of being young and educated. Now there is a mass transnational culture of disillusionment. A more optimistic version of the emergence of this group is to see them as part of the shift in the global political economy over the last few decades. The so-called expanding middle that people, some people are talking about, by which is meant both uh, the rise of middle-income countries and the connected phenomenon of the, expo- the expansion of the global middle class as a result of the success of globalisation, in the, in the words of these um, commentators. It's no co- coincidence then that the protests have, d- have erupted in many of the so-called emerging countries that appear on various lists that are compiled by Goldman Sachs economists and other proponents of neoliberal globalisation. Uh, the BRICS, uh, the Next Eleven, which is the, the group after the, the BRICS, which includes Egypt in some listings, uh, the latest one, the Mints, Mexico, Indonesia, Nigeria and Turkey and so on, This Jim O'Neill's latest uh, acronym. So that's one uh, interpretation of the emergence of this uh, group. The other rather less sanguine view uh, is that in many ways this group is part of the the global precariat that uh, Guy Standing, Standing talks about, and he was talking about this yesterday. And for him... Uh, this is generated by three decades of neoliberal globalisation, considered part of a flexible labour force by international capital, uh, comprising for standing those whose lives and, li- and identities are out of joint. Uh, they're unable to live and to pursue livelihoods uh, in a coherent and uh, sustainable way. They're often educated but insecure in terms of livelihood and living. And of course many would-be and actual migrants can be seen as part of the global precariat. Uh, Migration is often seen as a means of moving out of the precariat, but as we all know, migrants often find themselves immersed in insecurity in both their lives and livelihoods in host countries. In effect, they move out of one part of the global precariat in the homeland uh, to another part in uh, host countries. And transnational practices by migrants can perhaps be seen as a way of trying to overcome or ameliorate precariousness in both the home and host country. Sometimes this works, though, because for if precariousness or precarious living is um, one outcome of migration, it's not the only one, some of the better endowed indeed may leave the precariat. They may pass into the sort of ranks of foot footloose cosmopolitans with uh, similar pla- patterns of consumption, outlooks and perspectives in short, similar engagement in global capitalism. Arguably then they do become part of the expanding global middle class that the, the um, neoliberals talk about. 
So there are elements of both uh, the optimistic and pessimistic uh, perspectives at play in the emergence of the youthful, educated and unemployed or underemployed social group. I hesitate to call it a class, uh, but that's another story, um, that arguably drives both uh, migration and protest. As Paul Mason's portrayal suggests, many of the protesters are typically sort of cosmopolitan types who may move and study abroad or at least are at ease with global culture and travel um, and are transnational in orientation. Many have experienced migration personally or are encompassed into uh, transnational living by virtue of the relatives and close friends uh, who have migrated. Moreover, for Mason, he he suggests that the the sheer size of the student or graduate population wrought by the expansion of uh, tertiary education worldwide means that it's a transmitter of unrest to a much wider section of the population than before. And this applies, again, in both the developed world and and in the uh, global south. Under certain conditions, this, this social group can connect Mason suggests, with two other key groups, the urban poor and organised labour. And there's perhaps a bit of wishful leftist thinking here, um, but I think this has been sometimes the case in some some of the global uh, protest movements. So let's look at some of these uh, different trajectories of migration and protest uh, in a bit more detail. Well, the conventional way of Uh, presenting the alternatives uh, to difficult conditions has been the exit, voice and loyalty triumvirate uh, proposed way back by Hirschman back in the 1970s on moving to the left to the sort of uh, left position to a Cold War warrior Why do you keep looking at me now? It's in solidarity, Phil. I just happen to be sitting there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Put more simply as uh, fight or flight in the vernacular, this amounts, of course, to the the choice between uh, protest and resistance on one hand and moving out and away on the other. And loyalty or acquiescence was Hirschman's third, more passive option. Um, Okay, Hirschman was something of a Cold War warrior, but I think the scheme retains... Uh, some uh, attraction. According to his rather simple idea, which is a kind of pressure cooker model in a way, the pressure of discontentment leads to the two active options, leaving, exit, or articulating grievances in order to resolve them, voice. And in his original conception, the two had a kind of pendulum-like or inverse relationship, so that as one increased, the other decreased. But after the the collapse of the Soviet bloc in the late 80s and early 1990s, he modified this basic idea and he started suggesting that exit and voice didn't have to be in an inverse relationship, but could work with each other to hasten the fall of oppressive regimes such as obtained in in Eastern Europe. Taking this a bit further... um, Silvia Pedraza has um, recently suggested what I think is a useful framework in which she sets out four um, 
possible permutations of exit and voice, which I've modified here a bit uh, with due credit to her. So the first option is the, or the first two options really are the, the simpler ones. The first of all, first exit impeding voice. Exit or people leaving uh, weakens civil society by de- depriving it of motivated and energetic people who can articulate grievances. The second permutation is exit becoming voice. So those in exile or in diaspora articulate the grievances of those remaining at home who can't express uh, discontent because of uh, repression and fear. The third permutation she suggests is exit helping or augmenting voice. So those who leave uh, strengthen civil society in the communities that they leave behind by sending resources and ideas if, while they're away or by bringing back resources, ideas and organisational techniques uh, when they return. And then the fourth option is exit and voice growing together, exit and voice working in tandem, uh, reinforcing uh, one another. And I think we can probably see all or most of these permutations working in the recent uh, events, the recent wave of global protests. But the the much vaunted growth of social media, as well as diaspora TV, radio and so on, have made arguably the third and fourth permutations of exit and voice working together, working in tandem, uh, more uh, possible. So it's not fight or flight, but flight and fight. So transnational resources can be drawn upon to strengthen uh, protest and resistance. And I think during the, the recent wave of global protest, it was the graduate without a future that took the lead, uh, making uh, use of transnational connections partly forged by migration, their own, or that of those that they're, they're close to. What am I doing? Yeah, okay. Um, we can perhaps give this a, a, a further twist because neither exit or voice necessarily take a progressive form for those of us who, Phil, who like uh, progressive voices over uh, reactionary ones, as we've seen in the, uh, in the Arab uh, uprisings, no less than in other places. With this, with this in mind, I think there are two... Uh, at least two exit manifestations. So one is a a rather particular one, exit to join a diaspora which maintains ethnic, uh, national or other sectional identities and which might take a loyalist or oppositional stance towards the regime in the country of origin. So that's one exit manifestation. Another might be exit to join more uh, universalist, cosmopolitan uh, group which may uh, transcend uh, sectional um, allegiances and articulates liberal or liberating ideas and values. Of course there are positions in between these particularist and universalist positions or both positions could be taken over time. Likewise there are two or more voice variants. So on the one hand there are universalist progressive uh, voices uh, as articulated in anti-austerity protests in both the global south and the emerging world occupy the pro-democracy movements 
that we've been talking about and the Arab uprising, uh, the early, heady, kind of optimistic version that we've been talking about today, and movements with mixed demands in places like Turkey, Brazil, and elsewhere. So that's a sort of universalist voice. On the other hand, there are a particularist, uh, atavistic voices, uh, variants of fundamentalism and authoritarianism, authoritarianism al-Shabaab, military intervention, uh, the Arab nightmare, or whatever you might want to call it now, and so on. And of course, again, these are ideal types with grey areas in between. I think there's a further angle to this uh, to which Hirschman also drew attention quite per- uh, perceptively, I think. I think, as he rightly observed, exit is essentially often essentially a private activity, what he called a minimalist uh, way of expressing dissent. Voice, on the other hand, uh, is typically a public activity thriving on action uh, in concert with others. And of course we might qualify this to underline that in the aggregate, exit can become a very public activity or at least with significant public or collective consequences. Um, Hirschman revisited his original idea, as I suggested earlier, in the light of the implosion of the Soviet bloc from the late 1980s, and he noted the real mystery of the 1989 events, that's Berlin Wall and so on, is the, uh, the transformation of what started and was intended as per- purely private activity, the effort of scattered individuals to move from east to west into a broad movement of public protest. And for him, the explanation of this was that exit ignited voice. And I think that's quite a nice nice phrase, exit ignites uh, voice. So can the same be said of the recent wave of global protest and its counterpart in global mobility? It looks to some extent that way, because the, the transnational dimensions of all this, of course, have accentuated in the years since the end of the Soviet bloc. Think of the the, uh, different transnational combinations of exit and voice in, say, the Australian-Egyptian who comes to Egypt uh, to protest in Tahrir Square, the Canadian Tamil who protests in Toronto at war crimes in Sri Lanka, the Turkish activist in Berlin organizing demonstrations in support of compatriots in, in Gezi Park in in Istanbul, or indeed the British Somali who goes to fight with al-Shabaab. The view could be using the sort of initial Hirschman pressure cooker model um, that uh, out-migration can lead to the relief of uh, the pressure of discontent, and conversely that restricting migration and making mobility more difficult, as has been in the case in Europe, recently, as you all know, increases the prospect of, pro- uh, of protest. And this kind of um, perspective was set out nicely in a piece by Hein and uh, Nando a few years back, kind of a reflection and kind of immediate reflection on the events in, in the, um, uh, the Arab Spring and so on. And that certainly makes sense. But we might make a case um, that Increasing transnationalism, partly as a result of migration, has emboldened youth uh, to act uh, through the the transnational transfer of ideas, values and experience spread through social media. 
leading to fight, flight and fight, or migration and protest, as I said earlier, uh, acting in tandem and reinforcing uh, one another. So movement that has been thought of and experienced as a private act uh, becomes very much part of the public sphere. If the protest uh, impetus seems to have gone or faded for the time being, I think this combination of mobility and protest remains uh, a, pro a potent one for social transformation, the more so if it can uh, move beyond national confines. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. I'm just going to take the liberty with the permission of the organisers to draw your attention to an event which takes place on Saturday week at SOAS, which is the uh, Egypt Solidarity Workshop. It is indeed a progressive, I hope, it's a progressive initiative. Many of our academic colleagues and many, many students uh, are at the moment experiencing very disagreeable circumstances, as well as others. This is an opportunity to think about what's happening there and what we can do to help. So I hope you'll have a look at that, and I encourage you strongly to participate. Uh, I'm not on this occasion going to mobilise PowerPoint, um, but let me start by saying that the impact of the Egyptian revolution, I think, has been profound globally. The scale, intensity and continuity of the events in Egypt since 2011 may be unique historically. Uh, you know, the numbers and the continuity of the struggles. And of course it's received an enormous amount of attention, but the migration dimensions have received a very modest amount of attention and need to receive much more. It seems to me that the key to understanding some of the dynamics of the Egyptian revolution and of the migration element are to do with understanding the revolution as part of a process. It's a very long process. And particularly in the case of migration, it has to be set in the context of many decades of development, particularly, particular, particularly uh, certain um, patterns of, of migration. Now, First of all, I think it's important for us to note that, that Egypt is part of a region with a, a particularly rich migration history. Some of that was talked about this morning. The, the character of mobility in the region, particularly in the so-called pre-modern era. The nature of something like 150 years of the process of nationalisation of the region, what the British uh, colonial administrator, uh, Lord Curzon, famously called the unmixing of peoples, the creation of nation states, and the associated mass displacements which took place from the mid-19th century through to uh, the mid-20th century and beyond. Now Egypt was, was much affected by these developments, perhaps not as deeply, as profoundly affected as the Arab East and Anatolia, but nonetheless these movements produced within Egypt significant communities of migrants, largely forced migrants, Armenians, Palestinians, Jews at various points, Sudanese, uh, up to the mid 20th century, all made their mark as migrant communities within Egypt. At the end of the colonial era, migrations into and from Egypt largely ceased. 
There were some significant exits, but at a you know, lower level. Um, the exit of uh, European communities that had arrived in the 19th century, the ex exit of Jewish communities largely to Israel. But in the 50s and 60s, in particular, the borders of Egypt were largely closed. And this happened in many, many parts of the world where newly assertive post-colonial nationalist governments wanted to mobilise the population for development as what they saw as development purposes. So, as one Egyptian politician put it at the time in the, in, in the 50s, all of Egypt's manpowers needed to promote economic and social development. So, emigration was very strongly inhibited. And even in 1967, there were just 80,000 Egyptians living abroad, mainly professionals of various sorts. Then, of course, there came a very radical change from the late 60s onwards. There was a huge expansion of the oil economies, primarily in the Gulf and in Libya. And as Egypt moved into the 1970s, political turmoil. One outcome was an enormous increase in emigration. Emigration which now was strongly encouraged by the state. And the Egyptian state put in place all sorts of measures to stimulate out-migration to two key destinations, one in North Africa and Libya, of course, a neighbouring state, and the other on a much larger scale to the states of the Gulf. And the Egyptian state was interested in particular, of course, and we've heard this earlier today, in remittances, but also arguably, and this relates to a number of comments that have been made, including some by Nick, in exploiting what you might call the, the venting function of emigration. In, in other words, rather than having large numbers, particularly of young people around, getting involved in all sorts of um, uh, radical initiative to change a society in which they don't feel they have a, a very strong stake, that people are encouraged to leave and do their business somewhere else. And by the mid-1980s, um, there were three and a half million Egyptians abroad. There were in numbers of you know, educated uh, professional people, teachers, administrators and so on, but overwhelmingly these were people of rural origin working in unskilled jobs in the, in the Gulf and in Libya. Now, I don't want to get too hung up on this, but certainly for many people in the migration studies field, this is viewed as classic labour migration. Um, and particularly the, the role of the state, the facilitating role of the so-called home state and the host state, the specific interests of the so-called host state, very much shaping um, these patterns um, of so-called labour migration. But as Egyptians were leaving, ostensibly at least, to uh, work for... Uh, you know, what some of our colleagues in migration studies would see as sort of the opportunistic reasons in the oil economies, others were entering Egypt. By the, large, by the late 1980s, there were very large populations of forced migrants in Egypt and overwhelmingly in Cairo, most from the conflict zones of the Horn of Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Their lives were, in the case of almost all of them, from the moment they arrived, very precarious. Um, they, nonetheless, the 
pressures in the zones of crisis led to the build-up of very significant refugee communities. Um, and, in, and Cairo, I think it's fair to say, by the early 1990s, was uh, host to among the very largest global populations of urban refugees. One of the first very large populations of urban refugees which drew attention to the way in which the pattern of the encamped refugee in a global setting um, had been significantly altered. And as pressure in Egypt intensified through the 80s into the 1990s for reasons which I'll come to in a moment, it was these particular migrants who established new exit routes from Egypt. Um, And those exit routes were initially uh, through North Africa and primarily uh, through Libya and of course these routes were not taking people to the Gulf they were attempting to take people to Europe and by the late 1990s new clandestine routes of refugee movement across the Mediterranean had become very well um, established now one reason that pressures on the refugee populations, which were there from the beginning, of course, but nonetheless the pressures intensified relentlessly through the 80s and into the 90s, is that during that period, Egypt had become a laboratory for neoliberal reform. And one of the most fascinating things about Egypt is that the sorts of policies which were adopted as economic orthodoxy worldwide by the 1990s, the policies of the World Bank, the IMF and so on, um, had been practiced, had been theorised and practiced in Egypt from the early 1970s under the Sadat regime. By the 80s, they are in effect in full flood. Programs of marketisation, of reform of tariffs and and the like, and of the um, the welcome given to foreign capital, all having profound impacts even by then, impacts which are familiar to us at a global level today. In the case of Egypt, producing much increased poverty, landlessness, and an enormous intensification of inequality affecting in, in particular the more marginal um, sections of the rural population, driving rural urban migration but also driving something else because at this point by um, identifying the break point here roughly as the mid-1990s <laughs> Egyptians too especially young Egyptians of rural origin are also attempting exit, but again, not exit to the Gulf, because that option has been largely, not exclusively, but largely closed, but exit, exit to Europe initially through Libya. Um, and now, the cross-Mediterranean routes of forced migrants who originated in Africa become what I'm going to use the term very loosely here, become mixed migrations. Now, I don't want to use the term in any specific definitional sense. It's a very descriptive term. Um, Maybe we can visit that in discussion. So refugees, in the specific legalistic sense, people who uh, wish to make a claim for asylum, even if not all refugees in Egypt were ever able to make that claim, who might have the expectation of making a claim for asylum, Um, were joined from the mid-1990s by very significant numbers of Egyptians, particularly those displaced from the land, and 
and also now uh, people who are moving on from the informal areas of Egypt's large cities. By a decade or so ago, tens of thousands are attempting exit from Egypt's Mediterranean ports. Um, isn't the, the route had, if you like, spread east from Libya, where conditions would become more difficult for exit, and it's Egypt's own Mediterranean ports uh, where, uh, from which people are attempting to move um, across the Mediterranean Sea to Europe. The state makes, the Egyptian state makes very intensive efforts with a strong, as you can imagine, encouragement of the European Union authorities to inhibit that movement, but they fail. And I can remember a, a couple of years ago, um, Nando, Dawn, others might remember the date. I remember showing a film here um, in a similar sort of conference called Take to the Sea. I don't know if any, any of you remember the film Take to the Sea, which was made, I think, in 2004, which was the first attempt by an Egyptian NGO to sort of monitor the scale and the dangers involved in these journeys. Well, that brings us to the 2011 uh, revolution, the so-called Tahrir revolution, which had two sorts of effects, I suggest. First, for refugees, for refugees living in Egypt, and that means mainly people living in Cairo, and that's principally people who originate in sub-Saharan Africa or in the Horn of Africa. The the, the revolution brought... um, paradoxes in effect Um, many refugees in Cairo report how in the early phase of the revolution now these are people who lived a very very marginal life economically marginal and also subject to a considerable degree of uh, of prejudice uh, 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 quite often hard racism so socially marginalised but they reported in the early weeks and months of the revolution that the revolution had brought a type of embrace um, that particularly the organisation of people in the streets, the neighbourhood committees which came together to secure uh, localities against some of the threats of the revolution had involved and engaged um, African refugees in a way they hadn't experienced before. But that wasn't very long-lived because as the turmoil continued in Egypt with various elements of the old state attempting to reassert their authority first of all the military later on elements of the Islamic movement more recently the military again um, attempting to assert ideological control and physical control in the streets um, African migrants became a focus in the discourse of threat, the foreign hand which is interfering in Egyptian affairs, um, the unwelcome alien. And so many refugees reported actually greater insecurity as well, of course, as greater economic pressure. And this intensified their movements, uh, their attempted exits from Egypt, again, principally through uh, Egypt's Mediterranean port. So there's a very interesting subsidiary development at this point, which is the effort made by um, African refugees in Egypt, initially in Egypt, to move to Israel. And this is sort of an initiative which was undertaken particularly by Sudanese and then by Eritrean and some Somali migrants. But there's another dimension to the revolution in terms of migration. And that's the 
um, intensification of outward movement by Egyptians. Now, one of the first migratory responses to the Egyptian revolution was, was the mass arrival in Egypt, in Egypt of Egyptians who had been living abroad of people who wanted their stake in the revolution. There might be some people in the room. I certainly knew uh, quite a few people, wow, quite a few people in, um, in Britain who wanted to get back to, get over to Tahrir as soon as possible. That's an initial response. But um, as time moves, goes on, for some of the reasons that I've identified, more and more Egyptians are looking for exit. Now, this is partly because of frustrated expectation. And this relates, again, to some of the points that Nick raised. The, the expectations of the revolution enormously increased um, people's interest in the assertion of their rights, the expanding of the democratic space, people making specific economic demands, like, for example, the minimum wage, and also engaging in very political campaigns, for example, for the cleansing of those in the society they believed had oppressed them, the, the process of tathir, of removal, of cleansing. Now, that engaged many people, but it's, it's a process which was, which was uneven, and, uneven and partial and eventually uh, frustrated. And, and that's one element which has uh, one development which has led people to consider exit. But the other, which I think is more important, is the collapse of significant parts of the Egyptian state. The police apparatus, in particular, which had been attempting to inhibit outward movement, and especially in the more in remote areas of the uh, of the delta, the state apparatus collapsed, and that opened opportunities, not for for the um, I don't know, the youngsters of Tahrir the social media types, to uh, think about their futures in a different way, but especially marginalised rural youth. And most of the people who have been leading, leaving Egypt are not frustrated middle-class activists. They are people who have been living at the margin of Egyptian society and under the impact of the economic policies of the last two or three decades now feel that they have no um, alternative but to move abroad. Last couple of points. But the revolution, of course, in Egypt, um, as we've learned during the day, is not just a national matter. It's part of developments of real regional significance. And the Arab Spring, so-called, is to do with turbulence and change manifested in all sorts of different ways across the whole region. And by 2012, certainly by 2013, the refugee communities of Egypt... Um, are being joined by very large numbers of migrants from elsewhere, from Syria, by Syrians and Palestinians. And I've seen the figure, UNHCR figure, going up 137,000. Certainly, even the authorities in Egypt identify very much larger numbers of Syrians and Palestinians, many arriving by boats from Lebanon. A very interesting thing is that the means of attempting to get access to Europe involves for many Syrians and Palestinians, a trip through Egypt. The fastest route to Europe goes through Cairo and Alexandria. So routes pioneered by, largely by African refugees, consolidated by Egyptians, leaving a society increasingly in crisis, joined by refugees of multiple displacements elsewhere in the region. It seems to me, then, that the revolution um, intensifies migratory movements 
particularly when there are changes in the authority and the capacity of the state to control uh, borders. And in the case of Egypt, this has the decreased capacities of the state to control have released both refugees, and I use this term you know, with some hesitation, but refugees proper and uh, other migrants who've originated within uh, Egypt, making cross-Mediterranean journeys which we can at least loosely describe as mixed migrations. The EU, of course the European authorities, have done their very best to inhibit these movements by policies of, uh, by both ideological and structural policies of exclusion, but it's largely failing to control these movements as Egypt increasingly becomes a transit site for a vast number of displaced people who in one sense we can see as a collateral damage of processes of social change across the region. Lando, thanks. Okay, so good afternoon. Hope you are not too tired, <laughs> but we will be short. Um, so our, as you can see from the program, we've worked on a collective uh, presentation, a collective paper, and we we are going through three parts in order to present our our analysis. So first of all, uh, I will present some briefly some institutional mapping devices created by some international um, agencies of migration management. Then we explore uh, the possibility to represent spaces of migration from a different cartographic and political perspective and at last we will uh, draw on uh, some we will draw on um, we will co try to confront the institutional mapping devices that I'm talking about in the beginning with um, spaces of migration and movements and also of stay um, in and out of Tunisia in the aftermath of the Tunisian revolutions so a bit speaking also something from what Julia Breda also presented in her, in her speech. So, um, first of all, speaking about uh, mapping migration, um, I would like to say that this, uh, the idea of representing uh, migration routes as arrows around the globe uh, is not new, of course, being a rather old-fashioned way to retrace the human journey, presenting migration as a constituent feature of human life. And there are a lot of maps that you can see, of course, uh, about this. Um, nevertheless, in the field of migration, policy making, the notion of migration routes comes lightly to the fore in the 1990s uh, with a security-oriented approach. Migration and its roots have been identified have a possible conduit for security threats, therefore a potential tool for anticipating and managing movements. Um, and here I'm just going briefly, but uh, just to retrace a bit of this migration routes notion, since 2005 in particular, um, the global approach to migration, who you might be familiar with, uses the concept of migration routes to develop and implement migration policy, highlighting the importance of operational cooperation between countries of origin, transit, and destination, strongly relying on partnership with third countries and dialogues with third countries. So moving uh, quickly to mapping, a first identified example of mapping tools, mainstream institutional mapping tools that we identified is, of course, uh, Frontex that 
you can you have also come across, I think, the annual risk analysis of, of uh, Frontex, and uh, it goes, no, <laughs> sorry, pause. And so I'm not speaking in detail about this, but yeah, anyway. Um, uh, as you all may have noticed, of course, Frontex maps are uh, characterized by unidirectional arrows towards Europe with these uh, invasion uh, ideas. And the second identified example that we take into account in our analysis in the interactive map on migration. I'm sorry, I don't know how to stop this. Frontex conspiracy. <laughs> Pause. Maybe I will just quickly move to the interactive map of migration, which is here behind. So our second example of mapping device is exactly this, the interactive map of migration. I'm, I don't know if you have come across this. It's, it was developed in 2006 by, the, by ICMPD, the International Center for Migration Policy Development, Europol, and Frontex. And it's mainly, it's an online tool, so it's an interactive map uh, intended to foster intergovernmental dialogues, so between EU member states and non EU member states, so a kind of exchange platform for information regarding migration flows. Um, its main characteristics is that it's meant to show like a situational awareness of the situation, depicting like yeah, focusing on migration routes, and it builds upon, it merges the specific expertise of main agencies of migration uh, management. So it's not really creating a new knowledge on migration, but basically the map is collecting all the already existing expertise from Frontex, IOM, UNODC, UNHCR, as well as uh, some policy-driven research centers as uh, the European University Institute or the Migration Policy center and so on. Mm, so migration routes and country profiles are available clicking on the map. I mean it's a restrictive access, I can talk about this later on, but um, so the structure is based on profiles which uh, basically tell us about key migration hubs, known points of irregular border crossing as well as information on means of transport and migrant modus operandi. So as a result, our conclusion was that the IMAP reflects the knowledge-based governance upon which migration controls are predicated. And migration knowledge stemming from these big agencies of migration management is conveyed here, as an example, in order to hijack migrants' knowledge and to define and anticipate their, their movements. So this kind of mapping and situational pictures of migration can be used as the basis for intergovernmental dialogues and policy development. Um, the last reflection that I want to share with you is on the, on the IMAP still, is that the last interesting point is, um, is that the IMAP is built upon uh, using like the model of crowd mapping. Um, the crowd mapping briefly is a, um, like a collective cartographic product um, based on the idea that a crowd can, can contribute to, to a common tool, mapping tool. Uh, so the IMAP is using Ushahidi, which is an open source platform used by a lot of citizen grassroots movements. So it's interesting to notice that a very institutional tool like the Interactive on Migration is actually built on these uh, open source tool which was foreseen for a completely different uh, use. 
so at the end, our question um, is um, to which extent is it possible to, to counter map migration and using which tools? Mm, according to this, uh, to this analysis. And so I think I will leave the floor mm, to Martina, just to keep on our counter map that now, uh, <laughs> through which now we try to introduce to the theme of counter mapping. Because as Francesca said, uh, our idea to, um, to ground our presentation on cartographic devices uh, comes from the idea that uh, um, what is important in order to see uh, what migrants produce in terms of spaces and spaces of subjectivity, um, it uh, depends on the possibility to invert the gains on migration. And so uh, this kind of counter-mapping device that now I try to illustrate uh, is, uh, is the result of such an attempt. Uh, in fact, as Francesca stated in the beginning, um, through cartographic devices, it becomes very clear how uh, the fact that uh, migration-based governance uh, is is uh, is grounded on uh, on on the possibility to hijack and capture migrants' knowledge and migrants' practices. So, um, uh, knowledge on migration depends on the possibility to know about um, migrants, where migrants live, where migrants move, and try to counteract their movements and to anticipate them. And, um, and so this map uh, is a map which try not to represent, but to follow up, to follow, to catch up, and to put on the stage um, the, the movement of the Tunisian migrants uh, the movement that the Tunisian migrants enacted across the Mediterranean spaces, as you can see, this is um, it's a, it's a map rotated of 45 degrees on your left. This is Tunisia, the tiny, tiny island of Lampedusa, and Italy, because we tried to follow the movement of the Tunisian migrants who left Tunisia towards Italy, and then uh, who tried to go to France and to Paris, up to, Fra to, to Paris. Um, <laughs> So the idea is not to represent migrant routes. This is not at all. So the first point is that through this map, that this map is, has been included in a book that I co-edited with Glenda Garelli and Federica Sossi. The book is called Spaces in Migration, Spazi Migrazione. And uh, this map tried precisely to, to put on the stage the special upheavals that Tunisian migrants produce in, the, in space and how migration policies reacted. In fact, the icons show uh, uh, both uh, the effects of migrants' presence in space and uh, border enforcement, so how Italy and France reacted to the presence of these migrants. The second important point uh, which refer to counter-mapping is, is that this map has no borders. As you can see, there is no border between, uh, between states. And this is because, in, in our opinion, uh, Tunisian migrants uh, who left after the revolution, in some way, um, in some way they actually challenge uh, the borders. So the borders, this map is also an attempt to uh, challenge the idea, the notion of border as a line that migrants try to cross. The border is a, is a contested dimension. Uh, that migrants challenge every day. And so Tunisian migrants in some way unify the space of the Mediterranean. Um, and, uh, and the other important point is that in this map, as you can see, there is no name of the city except from Tunis, where the revolution started, and Sidi Bouzid. And uh, the reason of this choice is because we 
we prefer to resignify the cities like Rome, Milan and Paris with the special effects of the migrants and with the effects of border enforcement. And, um, and finally, uh, coming back to the previous panel about the relation between uh, the revolution uh, and, and migration, um, as, you, as you can see, by following migrants' movements uh, and, uh, and the, transformation, the special transformation that we produce, we try to challenge uh, the mainstream reading of the revolution, uh, which considered that democracy go from Europe to North Africa. So the idea is precisely the contrary, that Tunisian migrants carried on the revolution on the European spaces. And, and, and the other fact is that the same, those migrants were, were precisely the same people who in Tunisia struggled for freedom and democracy and, uh, and in some way transformed at the same time their country of origin and, and uh, the Mediterranean spaces. And about this um, special transformation in Tunisia, Marta now talk about. Okay. Thank you. First of all, I would like to underline that the revolutionary process has started in Tunisia long before December 2010 and January 2011, when the uprisings became visible to the rest of the world, as well as the impossibility to go backward. One of the outcomes of this long process before 2011 was almost immediately visible, fast and progressive since January 2011 onwards. A transformation of the internal and the external geography of the country has been possible through a less restricted circulation of the people in the Tunisian territory itself. Um, through migration, uh, so the first point is the less uh, restricted circulation of people in the Tunisian territory itself. The second is the, through migration towards Europe and uh, in the opposite direction, movements and travels uh, from Europe to Tunisia by researchers, activists and journalists. Uh, the internal geography was affected by people's movements during the uprising since 17 December 2010. Uh, the, the central region of Tunisia, so uh, as uh, the Sidi Bouzid region, yeah, yeah. So, uh, not not just the uh, city Bouzid region, uh, let's say the so-called uh, uh, marginalized region, region uh, marginalized. Um, so these regions of Tunisia have uh, always been considered the periphery of the country, not only by governmental policies, but even in the perceptions of citizens from northern region or coastal regions. Nevertheless, for the first time during the beginning of the protest, this periphery that was at the heart of the country became the new center. This geographic and cartographic metaphor shows how it is possible to draw new maps looking at social movements and public spaces they produce when they act a reappropriation of their own territory. It makes it possible to invert the order of the internal map of Tunisia, considering the challenge of internal borders. So she was speaking about the challenge of uh, borders, 
between Tunisia and Europe, but also I want to insist to the idea of the challenge of internal borders, because, because during the Ben Ali's uh, regime, it was very difficult to, to move inside the, ca the country, the, from the north to the south, for, uh, for example. Um, but the same, uh, at this time, the propagation of the uprisings was not a creation of new peripheries. peripheries. It was instead a combination of new spaces of flows and new public spaces. Um, this movement was composed by two main waves. One is the wave of activists, bloggers, journalists, researchers, or any people who arrived in the region of Sidi Bouzid when it was exploding by continuous demonstration. This first movement uh, in, in a first phase was concentrated, concentrated in a short period, December, January 2010-2011. Then it, con it continued and uh, it led to the organization of new events, festivals, projects, initiatives, formations, connection never existed before. Uh, for example, the Festival of the Revolution in Regeb, uh, uh, which is a small city near Sidi Bouzid, so in the same region where the uprisings uh, started. Uh, or, for example, the Hacker Festival, or uh, another initiative uh, connected with the uh, uh, U. He founded the project uh, Radio Revolution Regeb, or uh, a festival of human rights, documentary film, etc. All these initiative uh, connections, uh, festival projects, involved uh, generally youth people and new association. Uh, let's say the new face of this emerging civil society. The second wave of movement in Tunisia uh, was formed by association and organization both associations already in place before the revolution and the new groups created just after the revolutionary uprisings in the capital and in the other city. Uh, this tendency does not produce, in fact, new images, but generally it generates a repetition of the distinction between the center and the marginality periphery. Most of the association open new branches and sections in the country. Many projects uh, start in the region and the what is the most important uh, eff effect of this revolutionary process, many new reality, um, new groups and movements come up. Furthermore, most of the events and initiatives which uh, happened before the revolution were exclusively connected to the regime and the state apparatus. Um, so, before the revolution, uh, fixed images prevailed over dynamic, dynamic ones. In 2011, this general reappropriation of movement, public spaces, and territories made uh, 27,000 Tunisian challenge the border Tunisia-Europe from Tunisian coast towards the Italian coast, especially the small island of Lampedusa in the Mediterranean Sea. This phenomenon was taken into account by medias which mostly ignored the counter-tendency which was simultaneously at stake in the same periods. A great number of European people moved to Tunisia to share and create political connections, cultural exchange and project. 
When we mention project, we should uh, dis distinguish between the institutional and the European funded project from a grassroots movements and civil society initiative, not supported by any go governmental and infragovernmental programs. Um, we would like to mention at least some of these movements which create spaces and connections to stress how movements were multidirectional, focusing on a common need of knowledge, exchange and research. So my colleague Julia has already mentioned some initiative like the one with the uh, African people, but also with uh, the um, uh, the family of disappearing people. Um, I mentioned other initiatives, like for example the the caravan of Italian Yabasta Association uh, called the United for Freedom uh, in uh, Rasjdir Libya Tunisia border. Uh, the conferences uh, uh, pour une uh, libre circulation de la Méditerranée the social and political campaign with a petition for missing Tunisian uh, migrants and delegation of Tunisian family and Italian women activists, and uh, the Tunisian movie-making troupe in Italy and Tunisia to investigate our missing uh, Tunisian migrants, etc., etc. While movements from Europe towards Tunisia were obviously easy and free. On the other hand, we spoke about uh, the difficulties, the challenges, uh, the tensions and uh, difficulties uh, uh, who, which uh, Tunisia faced crossing a space in Europe. Nevertheless, Tunisian migrants displaced the emphasis of borders, putting into place what we call a politics of presence through their unexpected persist persistence in public spaces. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs>